Wow, it is a packed house here at Midtown Scholar. All right. Good evening to everyone. Welcome. Thank you for coming. I'm Eric Pappenfuss, my wife Catherine, who's in the back. We own the, the bookstore. Uh, we hope you've had a lot of fun from the outdoor tent sale to the author discussions, the book signings, the readings, the live interviews, Smart Talk Live, intellectual discussions on vital topics. It has been a true honor for all of us to host you this weekend. I want to thank you for coming out and supporting the festival. And I need to do a few thank yous to, um, to some very important institutions and employees. The first person who deserves a tremendous amount of thanks is Alex Brubaker, who is our manager. He's right there. Wave, Alex. <laughs> Alex handled all the complicated correspondence and coordination with the publishers and the authors. And if you think we've done well in terms of bringing talent to Harrisburg, you thank Alex because it's, it's really been all of his hard work. Now, he's got a great team of booksellers. Uh, and we, we do here at The Scholar. And if they're listening, I want them to, I want them to wave. But over at the counter, we've got Arion. Arion, can you wave? Wave, there we go. We've got Eric. Eric, wave. We've got uh, Olivia over at the counter. We've got, here, I'll just, I'll, 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 we can uh, applaud for all of them at the end. We've got Shannon, we've got Nathan, we've got Liz, we've got David, we've got Derek, we've got Logan, and we've got Mitzi. It's, a, it's an incredible crew, and they've worked so hard this weekend. So let's give all the Midtown Scholar employees a round of applause. We also have an amazing list of festival sponsors, and without their support of the festival and the literary arts, we really couldn't have put together this weekend. Uh, so as I say their names, could you give them a warm round of applause? Let's start with the Messiah College School of Humanities. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Powers, for bringing us students to all of these events. Let's also thank the Susquehanna College Department of English and Creative Writing. With the banner. Uh, also, a big thank you to the Harrisburg University of Science and Technology. And our leading sponsor, which not only has sponsored the festival, but brought us many wonderful volunteers to make great connections. They do incredible work. Learn more about them. It's the American Association of University Women Harrisburg Branch. Thank you. All right. Now, on to the main event. Tonight, we are in, to, in for a very special evening with some of the most respected historians and scholars working in America today. Our moderator this evening is Keisha Blaine. She is a historian who writes on race, politics, and gender. She obtained a PhD in history from Princeton University. She's an associate professor of history at the University of Pittsburgh and the editor-in-chief of the North Star. She's the author of award-winning books such as Set the World on Fire, Black Nationalist Women and the Global Struggle for Freedom. And we've got copies of that already signed up at the counter and co-editor of many other books. Her works have been published in acclaimed academic journals such as the Journal of Social History and Souls and popular outlets. She's written for include the Huffington Post, the Washington Post and the Feminist Wire. Would you please welcome back to the Midtown Scholar, Keisha Blaine. Now, Amani Perry is the Hughes Rogers Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University, where she also teaches in the programs in law and public affairs and in gender and sexuality studies. 
She is a native of Birmingham, Alabama, and spent much of her youth in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and Chicago. She's the author of several books, very incredible uh, books, including Looking for Lorraine, The Radiant and Radical Life of Lorraine Hansberry, and many others that you can get up at the counter. And her latest book is behind me. It's called Breathe, A Letter to My Sons, and she'll be signing this book after the talk. Um, she lives outside Philadelphia with her two sons, Freeman and Isa. Thank you for being here, Professor Perry. And returning back to the Midtown Scholar, we have Ibram Kendi, a New York Times best-selling author and the founding director of the Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center at American University. A professor of history and international relations and a frequent public speaker, Kendi is a columnist at The Atlantic. He's the author of the award-winning Stamp from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in America, which won the National Book Award for Nonfiction, and the Black Campus Movement, which won the W.E.B. Du Bois Book Prize. He's also published numerous essays and periodicals. He's been in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Huffington Post, The Root. He's received research fellowships, grants, and visiting appointments from a variety of universities, foundations, professional associations, and libraries. And he's the 2019 Guggenheim Fellow. His third book, which we have here tonight, is called How to Be an Anti-Racist. And he will be signing that book after it. So please give a warm Harrisburg welcome to Ibram Kendi. And thank you all again for coming. I'm going to hand it over to our panel. Good evening. Um, so I'm going to read first. The book is titled Breathe, A Letter to My Sons. Uh, it's a bit of a departure for me. It's my sixth book, um, the second that is written for a general audience and by far the most intimate. Um, and I'm going to read from the very beginning. Um, and I think that um, it'll give you a sense of, of the larger project. The first section is titled Fear begins with the June Jordan quote, I am not wrong, wrong is not my name, my name is my own, my own, my own. And then mine, it must be terrifying to raise a black boy in America, everybody and their mother and father too. Between me and these others who utter the sentence, the indelicate assertion hangs midair. Without hesitation, they speculate as if it is a statement of fact I look into their wide eyes, I see them hungry for my suffering, or crude with sympathy, or grateful they are not in such a circumstance. Sometimes they are even curious. It makes my blood boil, my mind furnace hot. I seldom answer a word. I am indignant at their pitying eyes. I do not want to be their emotional spectacle. I want them to admit that you are people, black boys, people. This fact, simple as it is, shouldn't linger on the surface. It should penetrate. It often doesn't, not in this country anyway. But no matter how many say so, my sons, you are not a problem. Mothering you is not a problem. It is a gift, a vast one, a breathtaking one, beautiful, one that makes me pray for an unmercenary spirit about what I am here to do. 
never considering it a burden or worthy of particular praise. Mima, your grandmother, said it this way, mothering black boys in America, that is a special calling. How do I meet it? What is it like? How do I meet this calling? Is it like cultivating diamonds, pressure that is so tight that it turns you black into something white and shiny and deemed precious and valuable? That's no good. Do I fuel it like coal, something that has to be burned up and used for the warmth of others or the consolation prize on Christmas? That's no good either. Do I cover my home in the blood of a proverbial sacrificial goat, praying that we are passed over, that the bloodthirsty fear lands at someone else's door? I am tempted, but I know that prayers don't prevent tragedy. They hold you up as you pass through it, sometimes. Is it like stalking through a labyrinth, breathless yet deliberate, avoiding the snow-white minotaur? Maybe I am Theseus. Was it ever so apparent that we need to have this reckoning? Maybe I am Theseus, a living vocation, but also simply living with beckoning, and that is what it feels like. Its tenor and tone shift with the shadows of each day, but it is always there. Sometimes it screeches, sometimes it trills and warbles, sometimes it is a perfect sweet pitch. Sons, I know you have heard about the abolitionist sojourner Truth. She has slipped out of the pocket frequently for Black History Month bona fides, her story is sparely told a thousand times over each day in February. Lacking potency even more than accuracy, the tellers make her, as you well know, both melodramatic and frankly boring. The truth is better. In 1826, Truth, enslaved in New York, ran away from her captor. She was due to be freed by dint of the gradual emancipation statute. But she suspected her owner was trying to find ways to keep her, so she got herself free. Two years later, her son, Peter, who was also due to be freed, was sold away to a plantation in Alabama in violation of the New York State statute. Truth, illiterate and black, sued for Peter's return, and she won. I have imagined her testimony, imagined because we have no authentic record besides the fact that she always made listeners quake. The depth of her voice, the straightness of her spine, the ripple of terror and outrage, her child was stolen. I imagine Peter, too, down south for the first time, facing rows of cotton. Maybe his fingers bled. Cotton is rough. Maybe he stood in a parallel row to one of our people, ones who had only had Alabama's cruelty. It could be that a grand of ours fashioned him a straw pallet, made it extra plump to soften his fate, fussed at him. Boy, eat when he couldn't stop crying and snotting, mumbling in Dutch, missing his mama. Long, miserable nights before, like a miracle, he got to go north, back home. So many mothers, many thousands more, never saw their children return. They witnessed only departures, theft, except perhaps on some private Pentecost, days full of unexpected grace in dreams or in the afterlife, or all three. In the flesh, on the block, they trembled, Buyers admired the evenness of form, the power, the things I admire, your sinewy strength, the eyes that tend towards vigilance, beautiful to me, valuable for human thieves. Mothers like me once had no recourse, no power to hold off the lash, to hold on indefinitely, to fight back when they crushed your heart and life. 
I think back then I would have been like Frederick Douglass's mother. I would have bared one of my scars, like the one on my knee from a bit of flying charcoal when I was six, and told you to remember me by it, in the crowd of endless labor to know me by it. And if I didn't have a landmark on my flesh, I would have made one for you, carved it into my right arm, a knifed X for your mother. So you know, this life we have is grace. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Excited to be here on this panel with two of my favorite scholars and people, Imani and Keisha. And I'm going to be reading from the end of the introduction from How to Be an Anti-Racist. Is that OK? Yes. Okay. <laughs> this is the consistent function of racist ideas and of any kind of bigotry more broadly, to manipulate us into seeing people as the problem instead of the policies that ensnare them. The language used by the 45th President of the United States offers a clear example of how this sort of racist language and thinking works. Long before he became president, Donald Trump liked to say, laziness is a trait in blacks. When he decided to run for president, his plan for making America great again, defaming Latinx immigrants as mostly criminals and rapists and demanding billions for a border wall to block them. He promised a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. Once he became president, he routinely called his black critics stupid. He claimed immigrants from Haiti all have AIDS while praising white supremacists as very fine people in the summer of 2017. Through it all, whenever someone pointed out the obvious, Trump responded with variations on a familiar refrain, no, no, I'm not a racist. I'm the least racist person that you've ever interviewed, <laughs> that you've ever met, that you've ever encountered, and can I say now that, you, that, that you've ever met anywhere in the world? <laughs> That's not in the book. <laughs> Trump's behavior may be exceptional, but his denials are normal. When racist ideas resound, denials that those ideas are racist typically follow. When racist policies resound, Denials that those policies are racist also follow. Denial is the heartbeat of racism. Beating across ideologies, races, and nations, it is beating within us. Many of us who strongly call out Trump's racist ideas will strongly deny our own. How often do we become reflexively defensive when someone calls something we've done or said racist. How many of us would agree with this statement? Racist isn't a descriptive term, it's a pejorative word. It's the equivalent of saying, I don't like you. These are actually the words of white supremacist Richard Spencer, who, like Trump, 
identifies as not racist. How many of us who despise the Trumps and white supremacists of the world share their self-definition of not racist? What's the problem with being not racist? It is a claim that signifies neutrality. I am not a racist, but neither am I aggressively against racism. But there is no neutrality in the racism struggle. The opposite of racist isn't not racist, it is anti-racist. What's the difference? One endorses either the idea of racial hierarchy as a racist or racial equality as an anti-racist. One either believes problems are rooted in groups of people as a racist or locates the roots of problems in power and policy as an anti-racist. One either allows racial inequities to per persevere as a racist or confronts racial inequities as an anti-racist. There is no safe space of not racist. The claim of not racist neutrality is a mask for racism. This may seem harsh, but it's important at the outset that we apply one of the core principles of anti-racism, which is to return the word racist itself back to its proper usage. Racist is not, as Richard Spencer argues, a pejorative. It is not the worst word in the English language. It is not the equivalent of a slur. It is descriptive. And the only way to undo racism is to consistently identify and describe it and then dismantle it. The attempt to turn this usefully descriptive term into an almost unusable slur is, of course, designed to do the opposite, to freeze us into inaction. The good news is that racist and anti-racist are not fixed identities. We can be a racist one minute and an anti-racist the next. What we say about race, what we do about race in each moment determines what, not who, we are. I used to be racist most of the time. I am changing. I am no longer identifying with racist by claiming to be not racist. I'm no longer speaking through the mask of racial neutrality. I'm no longer manipulated by racist ideas to see racial groups as problems. I no longer believe a black person cannot be racist. I'm no longer policing my every action around an imagined white or black drudge, trying to convince white people of my equal humanity, trying to convince black people I'm representing the race well. I no longer care about how the actions of other black individuals reflect on me, since none of us are race representatives, nor is any individual responsible for someone else's racist ideas. And I've come to see that the movement from racist to anti-racist is always ongoing. It requires understanding and snubbing racism based on biology, ethnicity, body, culture, behavior, color, space, and class. And beyond that, it means standing ready to fight at racism's intersections with other bigotries. This book is ultimately about the basic struggle we're all in, the struggle to be fully human and to see that others are fully human. 
I share my own journey of being raised in the dueling racial consciousness of the Reagan era black middle class, then right turning onto the 10 lane highway of anti-black racism, a highway mysteriously free of police and free on gas and veering off onto the two lane highway of anti-white racism where grass is rare and police are everywhere before finding and turning down the unlit dirt road of anti-racism. After taking this grueling journey to the dirt road of anti-racism, humanity can come upon the clearing of a potential future, an anti-racist world in all its imperfect beauty. It can become real if we focus on power instead of people, if we focus on changing policy instead of groups of people. It's possible if we overcome our cynicism about the permanence of racism. We know how to be racist. We know how to pretend to be not racist. Now let's know how to be anti-racist. Thank you so much to um, Ibram and Imani for your wonderful books. I was actually hoping you would start with just talking a bit about how you came to write these books. What are the circumstances, motivations that led you to begin these amazing books, which of course we're now able to enjoy and, and more, importantly, more importantly learn from? Okay. Um, so my, the book, Breathe was actually the idea of my editor, um, Gayatri Patnaik, who is extraordinary and is partly prompted by her saying, well, you talk about your children all the time, and you particularly talk about them on social media. Um, and initially, I thought it would actually be something that was much more lighthearted. Um, but then when I started to take seriously, to sit down and think about, well, what, what would I write um, about the work of, of being a steward for my children's lives. Um, I actually turned into what I often do, the tradition, what I call the tradition, um, meaning both a kind of private matter, the fam my family tradition, my cultural tradition um, in the Deep South, um, kind of working class black life in the Deep South as a kind of point of origin, but then also the literary tradition, the idea and black, ideas in black letters. and so. You can see from the very beginning, there's a direct engagement with W.E.B. Du Bois. The structure of the book itself is an engagement with Baldwin, with Richard Wright, with Toni Morrison, um, with June Jordan. And so really what emerged was actually finding a way to articulate the significance of this tradition and actually giving us the stuff of struggle, right? And also articulating the incredibly incredible beauty um, that exists in black life, notwithstanding the persistence of racism, and, and in particular, anti-black racism. So that's sort of what it em em emerged into. Um, so all of that, and then also the fact that I gave my children veto power over what wouldn't be in the book. So there, that shaped it as well. And for me, it was, so my last book, um, my last book, Stamp from the Beginning, which I sort of narrated, narrated this history of racist ideas, but I also narrated the history of anti-racist ideas, mm -hmm. and, and the, it was a sort of 
the book had these five major characters. The last major character was Angela Davis, who, who said a few decades ago that it's not enough for us to be not racist. We must be anti-racist. And, and I found that that was a more useful term to describe the opposite of racist ideas, specifically since the producers of racist ideas had been self-identifying as not racist. So I couldn't use <laughs> how they were framing themselves as the, as the sort of term for the opposite. And so I, I, I wrote that book, and I would oftentimes, when I spoke about the book, including here, you know, I would urge people to be anti-racist. And for many people, that was new to them. They, many people had been taught to be not racist. And so the more I sort of urged people to be anti-racist, the more people were like, okay, you got to break that down. Like, you know, what does it mean to be anti-racist? How can I be an anti-racist? And, and the more people asked me that question, the more I, I realized that I had a book on my hands. So one of the things that I noticed in reading uh, both of your books is that you both engage, um, well, similar authors, but, but, you, but you both engaged W.E.B. Du Bois and particularly The Souls of, of Black Folk. Could you talk about uh, double consciousness, which of course comes up in both of your books, um, you know, not just sort of through your own experiences, but just broadly speaking, how you've engaged this concept of this sort of internal conflict of what it means to be American and African American. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so, you know, this, this formulation of double consciousness, which takes on so many different forms, um, I'll talk about engaging it in one particular way. So, um, it, it, the, one of the metaphors that he uses to describe it is the veil, right? Um, and if one thinks about a veil, right, it is one wears a veil, you, can see in, you, you cannot see inside, but one can see outside of the veil. So life within the veil or life behind the veil in some sense articulating um, um, black consciousness, kind of third existing um, as having a consciousness of Americans from the outside in as well as having this kind of interior space. But for me, what is also really resonant is in black folk tradition, the veil is a symbol or call is uh, when, when children are born with a membrane across their faces that gives them the gift of second sight. They can see ghosts, they can see into the future. In the past, they have a, a, a uh, a sophistication, and I, I think of that as um, actually having a practical implication, right? That to be black in the United States, one has to think outside of oneself and also inside. So it is a metaphor that is put to practical application. But it's also, again, about the tradition, the invocation of a, of a folk tradition, which is so central to Souls of Black Folk, right? Um, and I think in terms of imparting this to young people, and this you know, resonates directly, and Ibram and I had this wonderful long conversation um, for, what was it, afterwards, or was it, or, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and and you know, I asked him questions about this as well, but you know, this, this notion of, of um, coming of age as a black person, and particularly as a middle class black person, and resisting the impulse to distinguish oneself from the larger body of black people, in part because what one is constantly aware of the general perceptions of the black people, right? Um, and that, I think, um, as a very, you know, part of the, the task of double consciousness is also not to be seduced by the third person consciousness, right? But to actually hold on to um, a sense of one's value that is not attached to distancing oneself from a larger black population, but actually understanding the points of identification and the necessity of advocacy, 
right? The necessity of um, a struggle that is not just dependent upon your own experience, but um, the larger community. Yeah, and I think to add very briefly to that, I, I, I think another, particularly with the last form that Imani mentioned, you know, I had a, a chapter entitled Dueling Consciousness, and it really sort of talked about how in many ways I was raised by my parents um, with this tremendous black pride, um, but then a simultaneous sort of yearning to be white, which was deeply in contradiction, right? And it was this sort of what Du Bois called this sort of inner strife. Um, and, and so I talk about that sort of double consciousness among black people, but then I also talk about a sort of double consciousness, or I should say dueling consciousness among white people too. Mm. And, and, and so with, with white people, particularly as it relates to the Negro, to use Du Bois' term, um, it is simultaneously this question of whether black people can become white. Mm -hmm. And so with some white people claiming they can become white and others claiming they cannot become white. And for many white people having both ideas sort of confronting each other within their own minds. Um, and, and I think we've talked you know, a lot about the double consciousness of black people, and I wanted to sort of em emphasize this sort of double consciousness between, like, let's say, a Blue Lives Matter and an All Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk a bit more about uh, education, which, of course, is such a, a significant theme in both books, not just your own education, um, and for Imani, the education of your, of your sons, and um, Ibram, to an extent, you talk about your own education, but just education broadly and the sort of the significance it plays in, in not just the development of anti-racist ideas, but even particularly so racist ideas. Could you both talk about education broadly? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, you know, I, um, I, I come from a family in which education is a sort of um, incredibly intensive significance. My grandmother who cleaned people's homes for a living, um, and then worked in a hospital that sent 12 children to college out of Jim Crow, Alabama. So, um, you know, this, the, this idea, of, and, and education not, uh, it's very, I think it's really important that in my family culture, the notion of education was not for employment. It was for the expansion of who you could be. Right, so not an instrumentalist notion of education. Um, and as many of us have heard, right, they would say, people would say, it's the one thing they can't take from you, right? Mm -hmm. No matter what, right? And so, um, but there's also this piece, and I'm gonna veer a little bit away from Breathe to, to make this point that I think is really, for scholars, and for me as a scholar of black studies, you know, we work in black studies, and I think we all have stories of this. I wrote this book called um, May We Forever Stand, which is a history of the song Lift Every Voice and Sing, which is a song known as the, as the Black National Anthem. And for the first several times I talked to editors about it, they were like, oh, you know, I'm not sure that's not just an article, like there's not <laughs> much information um, about that. And part of that reason was that people, the conventional modes of doing research for a book like that, didn't yield much. You had to actually understand black institutional life in order to see how vast the trove of this song was. So because I had been in black institutions, not necessarily academic, but all kinds of them, I knew the kinds of programs where people would sing the song. I knew the, the, um, the, the ritualistic significance. So I had, you know, 
7,000 documents because I knew where to look. It wasn't in an arc. There was no archive that said, here's the Lift Every Voice and Sing archive, right? And so I think of education on two tracks then, right? There's the benefit of the formal education, right? And in particular, the kind of insurgency of black studies in the formal education. And for me, part of that is the education that happened for me outside of schools, right? And how much of that has played a role in both what I do as an educator, but also what I do as a parent. Yeah, and I think, I think one of the sort of through lines in this, in, in this text, particularly within the personal narrative mm -hmm. that I share, which is literally this sort of journey, mm -hmm. is, is in many ways it's an educational journey in which from early on, since the time I was in high school, I was trying to sort of answer the question, what or who is the problem? Um, and, and what I mean by the problem, the racial problem. Mm -hmm. And, and I was constantly you know, seeking to answer that question. Is it black people? Is there something fundamentally wrong with black people? Is there something fundamentally wrong with white people? Is there something fundamentally wrong with both black people and white people? <laughs> Is there something wrong ultimately with, with power and policy? And, and how I sort of was educated, I mean, I don't think, I think I have a few sort of uh, anecdotes from an actual formal classroom. <laughs> but, but the vast majority of my education was things that I was experiencing. Mm -hmm. Mentors, uh, like these two black feminists who I went to grad school with, who uh, sort of educated me um, formally and in informally outside of the classroom. Um, and even things that I was sort of witnessing, in which experiences would sort of force me to put up a mirror to my own self and my own ideas, and I didn't really like what I saw. And so I sort of decided to change. Could you talk a little bit about um, some of the challenges you encountered in writing these books, and whether these are external and or internal, um, if you want to address both. But what are some of the challenges that you faced? Hmm. I mean, you know, and I think the question, and we had an off-the-record little mini discussion about this last time we saw each other, but you know, the intimacy, right? Um, and the revelation of, of illness, of personal tragedy, of heartbreak, and that, you know, to, it is always a kind of incredibly intensive, rigorous project to do the work of black studies that is in a serious way, right? Because it requires the mastery of like conventional disciplines and then also these other ways of getting information and grappling with all of it and always at least two bodies of literature and all these sorts of things. And then to, so that is always there, but then the level of actually connecting it to not just your life, but your body your person, right, um, and the, and, and trauma, as well as the depth of love, both of those are very scarily, scary to um, expose. And so, um, yeah, so demand, you know, the kind of requirement of oneself to have a kind of courage to do justice to the story you're trying to tell, I think that was the hardest part for me. So I think two things pop in my head. First, trying to get information out of my parents. Um, <laughs> See, I gave up on that. Yes. Right? <laughs> I mean, you know, like, I want a small detail, but they want to give me a two-hour lecture about something. Um, and then when I'm like, well, actually, no, I just need to know this. No, you're going to hear all this other stuff first. 
And, and so, you know, having to sit there patiently and then pushing back and then, you know, them being like, I'm disrespectful. So, you know, just that, of course, was extremely difficult. And I've had, but then again, that's what we have to do with traditional sources, right? When we go and interview people for books, mm -hmm. uh, you know, at least with our parents, we in a way can push back, right? right. With, a, with a traditional source, you just have to sit there right. and just, you know, hope that they get to the mm -hmm. point of your question. Um, <laughs> but uh, so, of course, that was, that was difficult. And then, of course, there were certain, you know, I'm critical of, of not only myself in the text, mm -hmm. but also my parents um, in certain types of ways. And, and so, you know, there was some negotiation there um, mm -hmm. for the for the lack for the for a PC term, um, <laughs> and but then also, I mean, I was um, after the book is, um, I think, seventeen chapters, eighteen chapters, and you know, obviously, um, after writing the fifth chapter, I was diagnosed with cancer, mm -hmm. um, and so I wrote the last. 13 chapters um, while, go, while sort of fighting um, stage four colon cancer. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but the good thing, again, for the lack of a better term, is, is in many ways, I felt like those first five chapters that I wrote, like it literally took me about a year to write those five chapters. Mm -hmm. And that was before the cancer. And, and I don't know, I, I just, I felt like I wasn't, sort of portraying and using the right register. But for whatever reason, the writing came easier. Mm. Um, you know, when I was sort of writing at the same time I was going through chemotherapy. Um, and also, you know, after my surgery. And I think that was because in many ways, I think because this was the follow-up to Stamp from the Beginning, and Stamp from the Beginning was highly regarded, like I was like, I don't want to be a one-hit wonder, and, <laughs> you know, I, you know, I, I, I want to, you know, put out The first multiple... book was phenomenal, too, though, I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> you know, I want to be able to put out multiple great books like Imani, and, you know, but, um, and so I think when the cancer, when I was diagnosed with cancer, I just wanted to finish the book. Right, and, and I didn't even know whether I would be able to even finish it, whether I would even live to see um, it being published. And so, you know, you know how we get in our own way, right? So many times when we're trying to sort of do our best work and, and so I got out of my own way. Or I should say the cancer took me out of my own way. Um, and, and I think, so therefore I think within the next eight months I wrote the final 13 chapters. Can I cast a little follow-up? Because I think, because that is so profound to me. And I, one of the things I often feel is that in moments of, my own moments of serious illness, there's something that happens where you almost, like the body contracts yeah. and you're weak, but then there's something like your spirit expands mm -hmm. and it somehow allows for the imaginative and creative work to emerge. Yeah. Did you? I think so. I mean, yeah. that's, that's really what it was. Because I think I was just so focused, right? Mm -hmm. and, and nothing else mattered. And in many ways, I wanted to be so focused mm -hmm. because whenever I lost focus, I would feel my symptoms from my chemo mm -hmm. or I would think about my mortality. And so in many ways, I don't know whether it was that yeah. for me. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Um, 
in the book, Ibram, you draw this parallel uh, between racism and, and cancer, and you make the argument that uh, we should address uh, dismantling racism in a sort of a similar way that did cancer is treated. Could you talk a little bit about that? And also, uh, Imani, could you then talk about some of the uh, advice that you give to your sons uh, in the book about how to deal with racism in America? Mm -hmm. So I think first and foremost, the sort of parallel that I drew and that I, that I, that I draw is that first, it is extremely difficult, and I'm sure some people in here have faced cancer or have a loved one who faced cancer, and when you're not, I, I think typically people ask, why me, right? Mm -hmm. Particularly if they don't have risk factors, particularly if they don't have a family history, and I didn't have risk factors or a family history. And so first, it's accepting that you have such a serious illness, right? And, and it's very difficult for people to accept that they have this serious illness of racism. Mm. Um, and in the way that it's very difficult for people to accept that they have the serious, that they have metastatic stage four cancer mm -hmm. at you know, mm. 35 years old. And so I think, first and foremost, we have to accept that, right? We have to stop denying it. And, and because if we, if we continue to deny it, it will kill us. And, and it will kill our country. Uh, and then secondly, the way we treat cancer, metastatic cancer, is the way we can treat metastatic racism in our society. And so typically, doctors have a local treatment and a systemic treatment. So the local treatment, they go in and surgically remove the tumors of, of racist policies. You literally remove the racist policies from institutions, from society. And, but then they also have a systemic treatment in which they literally flood the body they flood the body politic with mm -hmm. anti-racist policies, mm -hmm. which then have the capacity to reduce racial inequity, mm -hmm. which have the capacity to prevent the reoccurrence of racial inequity. Mm -hmm. And then through those local and systemic treatments, if you're able to free the body of racism, if, if doctors are able to free the body of cancer, they don't stop there. They continue to watch the body very closely, mm -hmm. right, to make sure there's not a reoccurrence. Right. And so all of those are the types of things that we can do if we had the political will. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I... Um, I think a large, I don't, I, you know, I struggle with the concept of advice mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. there's part of the reality of, um, of the terror that is associated with being black in the United States is that um, there's a kind of sense of immediate terror of violence, right? But then there's also the question of a kind of terror that comes from the unreliability that if one does things the right way, that one will have particular outcomes, that mm -hmm. that in fact is the kind of way in which racism is terrorizing and the frequency with which we find ourselves blindsided mm -hmm. in every possible walk of life, whether it's medicine, you know, it's in the physician's office, it's in school, it's at work, it's on, it's driving, it's right. Um, and so um, I wanted them to have, to not, to, to notwithstanding that reality, to not, 
um, believe in the lie of white supremacy. That is one of my sort of most essential lessons. Mm -hmm. um, I also am very clear that I want them, I, I have refused to clip their wings, right? Mm -hmm. And so to have a sense of possibility. My mother always says you raise black children as though the world were free, but also to know that it's not. Right, so that they have a sense of an expansive sense of their own possibility and imagination and growth and exploration, and then know that that is that is they are likely to face adversity, and that the adversity does not is not in fact a sign that they are inadequate or inferior. Mm -hmm. um, and also to embrace joy and beauty. I mean, and that's part of. I mean, in some ways, it's more of advice to parents, right? Because we be, can become overwhelmed by our anxiety and our fear and our protectiveness. Um, and then there's also the, you know, I talk a lot about the pursuit of excellence. I use Thelonious Monk as a metaphor, and I say to them to do it like Monk, right? So in the sense of this sort of the exercise of excellence with all its permutations and combinations, Monk would go over and over again with the same song, right? Um, and you'd have, they'd have a different iteration each time. And I think that, you know, the sort of, the, to be in the full thrall of, the, of one's humanity and existence in a celebratory fashion and to find people who share um, a, sen a common sensibility, right? A sense of common purpose, a sense um, uh, to believe in intimacy, to let go of the ideals of patriarchy is a big part of the lesson and that, you know, to, to not need to sort of be above other people, but actually to try to find communion of spirit with other people. Um, those are the kinds of things that um, I'm asking, and this is like, it's in a book, but it's also our day-to-day -day kitchen conversations, right? Mm -hmm. To try to talk about what it means to be a full human being. And I think all of those are actually essential elements to becoming justice warriors. I think that to actually sort of pursue some of these paths, you have to have a deep sense of your own value and possibility in your life, right? I think for as black people, and um, as opposed to, you know, there's a particular type of iteration of struggle that fixates solely or even overwhelmingly on deprivation, but we have so much abundance, right? Um, and I want them to revel in that. And if I could ask really quick, and part of the, reason you, you open saying that you didn't want to necessarily give them advice is part of that because if let's say they follow or don't follow the advice and they become a victim yeah of, let's say racist violence that you don't want them blaming themselves i do not want okay. them blaming themselves and i also you know, we also have this hope that our children can figure it out better than we can, yeah. right? Yeah. And there's a way in which we kind of become too doctrinal. We don't give them the space to figure out, to imagine another way. I mean, but then, you know, it, so I say that on one hand, but it's also, you know, it's a resource-rich life. Like, I'm so excited about your book project with Jason Reynolds, it's mm -hmm. Children's Hooker Stamped. You all know this is coming? <laughs> Tell it. <laughs> oh, so Jason Reynolds is rewritten stamp from the beginning for, for YA audience, middle schoolers and high schoolers. Yeah. It's coming out yeah. in March. Yeah. And it's, you know, though, that, that's important for all of our children, right, to have, so what part of what we give them is the resources, right, to actually imagine better, I think. Well, we, you know, with so much going on right now, I think um, in this quote-unquote age of Trump, there's so many reasons to be pessimistic, and I'm struck by the fact that both of your books end with this very 
optimistic but hopeful message. Could you talk about hope? Um, where it comes from, that would be helpful too because I think many of us could use some encouragement today. Well, I, think, I think for me it, 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 it comes both from history and philosophy. And, and so from history, I mean, there's just been so many examples in which the impossible happened. And, and probably the most impossible thing that has happened in the modern world was probably the Haitian Revolution. I yes. mean, that's probably right up at the top. Mm -hmm. it, you know, for those of you who aren't familiar with the story of the, the Haitian Revolution, you, you're talking about um, that Haiti at the time, or San Domingue, was the most profitable colony in the world of any Euro European power in the 1790s. So it was the jewel of the French Empire. And in 1791, enslaved Africans sort of fired up by uh, a man named Buchmann sort of launched what became known as the Haitian Revolution. And between 1791 and 1804, when they stood up and, 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 and declared Haiti an independent uh, the first free black republic in the Western Hemisphere, they defeated their local slave owners, uh, as well as armies from France, England, and Spain in succession to win their freedom with no military training. And so, like, and so essentially the jewel of the French Empire was lost. It totally changed the course of the Western Hemisphere because Napoleon lost his mighty army in Haiti, he decided to sell what, be, what Louisiana, or there was a Louisiana purchase in 1803, which doubled the size of the United States. You know, I can go on and on, you know, but, but I get it from history. Like, and that's one example, even the example of 13 small little scrawny colonies stating that they were going to defeat the, the mighty British Empire, which people thought was, was crazy. Um, and then also philosophy, that you literally have to believe that change is possible in order to bring it about. Those, those, those enslaved Africans believed that they could defeat the three most mighty, the mightiest armies in the world in succession. And everybody thought they were crazy, but they didn't think they were crazy. And we have to essentially believe we can do um, and survive racism against all odds. Mm -hmm. I need some of that hope. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, when, when Trump was elected, I found myself overwhelmed by a very particular kind of rage. And I thought, um, my mother grew up in a white nationalist state in Birmingham, Alabama, and expended in Jim Crow, Alabama, ex spent almost the entirety of her 70 plus years of, of her life fighting against um, the ideology of white supremacy and exploitation and, um, and, and abusive power, right? And here we were again. And it made, me, um, it made me angry. And then it's also this question, I, I find myself repeatedly asking this question, okay, now we are 400 plus years in, right? Are we still gonna do this? I mean, I, for, this is a very real question for me. So I, I um, so, Ten years ago, when people would say to me, why do you believe that when I, I wrote a book that was on um, kind of uh, the structure of racial inequality in this country and how to 
um, struggle against it. And they said, why do you believe that this is possible? And I would say, well, I come from Alabama, and we had this incredible social revolution in the mid-20th century. I don't feel, I don't have that same sensibility anymore. But I, but I also keep, I think that there's an ethical imperative for a parent to have hope. When you bring people in the world, you have a responsibility to work towards making the world the kind of place that is worthy of their incredible beauty. Um, and so hope is a practice for me more than a faith. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Thank you to both of you. We will now open up to uh, audience questions. If you have a question, just feel free to raise your hand. There's one of me, there's a lot of you, so just be patient with me. I'm gonna start over in this area and then we'll kind of work around the room. So I have a bit of a uh, moral philosophical question. Um, so as a student of anti-racism, I am acutely aware that my voice as a well-educated cis white woman is listened to more closely than black and brown activists whose work I honestly think is sometimes much more poignant. Um, and so I find myself thinking that I want to continue writing and want to continue ad advocating, but I also don't want to enshrine the, the kind of white supremacy or um, uh, in, 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 I guess my voice is consonant with the seats of power. And I don't know if I can justify continue to speak loudly because that might continue the problem, if that makes sense. Yes. So, so I think the way that I can sort of relate um, is I actually, let me just say, I do agree with the premise, which is that um, for, for a white person who's, who's deeply racist, they're more likely going to listen to what you have to say than what the three of us have to say. Um, and, but that doesn't necessarily mean that in sort of seeking to communicate anti-racist ideas um, or even sort of black ideas or, or the ideas of other people of color to these white people that you can't continue to sort of go to the well of let's say black scholarship. And, and the way that I sort of relate to that is, you know, as a man, I recognize that other men, other deeply patriarchal men are gonna be more likely to listen to what I have to say um, about gender than they would Keisha and Imani. Mm -hmm. So what I do is I'm constantly reading and studying black feminist sort of literature, and I, what I'm seeking essentially to do is to be a translator. Um, and you know, to be a translator to those men, because I recognize that they're going to hear what I have to say in the way they're not going to hear from other women. Can I just, just as a little piggyback on that, I mean, I think, and it's, there's a wonderful example, if you haven't yet read the book, is, in, his, in Ibram's citational practices, right? Which I think is a model so that, because you always, when you decide to cite or reference people, that's a way of sharing power, right? And all of this yeah, sort of political ambitions to make a more just society 
operate through structures, through communities, through organizations, through whether we're publishing houses, right? And so even if you, you know, I think there is always value in speaking loudly for justice for everybody, so I want you to continue to do that. But I think the question is always, how do we share power in the institutions that we occupy? Uh, just first of all, to have one of you, hi, how you doing? Hi. To have uh, any one of you on the stage, let alone all three of you on the stage right now is amazing, so thank you for that. <laughs> so whether it be the 1619 Project or Stamped or even the Kitchen Table, uh, what role do you feel like anti-racism education or liberation education has or could have in K-12 education? Thank you. Uh, I think it's essential in K-12 education. I mean, part of, I'm actually working on a, uh, with a group of scholars on a curriculum project, uh, an archival project, which may turn into a curriculum project, but there are um, incredible archives from uh, schools in the segregated South that are essentially um, either unprocessed or, or very rarely available so that even when they've been collected and many of the collect and so we're trying to gather all of them because what you find in those archives is actually a very overt education for liberation they're often very internationalist right so you have um, when they're teaching black history they're teaching it as a global matter they're talking about the history of empire um, when you go into and i have some of the documents that i've been able to sort of scour on ebay and the like and so we actually have a model for this that is just completely submerged in the, in, in the narrative of the history of American education, right? Um, and of course, there's more recent models, but I think, I think it's essential, um, and we know it's essential because every successful social revolution we've had has depended upon, and in this country, in significant measure, think the education of children. Um, and that's, uh, there's a, a mischaracterization, I think, of the history of social movement in this country that has neglected that, but yeah, absolutely true. Question in the third row. I'd like to echo the last comment about um, the gift of having all three of you here at one time and for the power of your scholarship and the power of your presence. My question is related to the last one, but it's about um, the celebration of black beauty and art and creativity, which both of you have spoken to in different ways. If you were to imagine other forms through which educational practices, scholarly practices, public policy practices can better showcase the beauty and the power of black culture and black arts um, alongside and in concert with anti-racist efforts and policies in sort of the perfect imagined world, or in our very flawed world as it exists now, what would you want that to look like? So, so actually, I'm gonna sort of say something that may surprise you a little bit. Um, and that is like in, in sort of what we would showcase would not just be the beauty, but the ugliness. You know, Langston Hughes in 1926 once talked about, once wrote that the Negro is beautiful and ugly too. Mm -hmm. And so having the ability as a, as a nation and even as a, as, a, as a group of black people to accept both the beauty and the ugliness um, and see in that duality the humanity 
um, of a racial group, knowing simultaneously that there's beauty and ugliness in other racial groups, um, I think that that's what I would sort of aspire to. Um, and, and, and I think that it's, it's very, very difficult because obviously you have people, whenever they see, let's say, me acting in a lazy manner, they think black people are lazy in general, like tens of millions of us, right? <laughs> and, and so knowing that, and black people knowing that, um, that that's how some white people respond, there's a sort of fear mm. in a way of sort of portraying your humanity, right? Because in, 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 in you can't really be perfect. Um, but I think, at least as black people, we have to overcome that fear. We have to be willing to be human. Um, and, and, and to say that if somebody looks at me and, and my ugly laziness one day, and then imagine that that's, I'm representing the entire race, that there, that means there's something wrong with them mm -hmm. and not black people and not me. Can I just say just a little bit in response to that? Because I think it's a, such a powerful question, in part because we're in this period and doing really wonderful things and kind of re-narrating public history, right? Um, monuments, sculptures, um, murals, all these sorts of things to try and um, have our collective narrative of who we are reflect the world we live in in a more robust and richer way. And we do that knowing that it is always the case that people will be left out. But I think the, more, the other layer of complication is we have to ask the question of to what, what are the ideological underpinnings to which we're asking for accept, you know, admission, right? And so the question of what does it mean to have a monument of the narrative of towards a more perfect union given the kind of imperialist impulses of the United States government, right? What does it mean to have a Navy warship named after John Lewis, right? A warship for a pacifist, right? I mean, you know, these are the kinds of questions that emerge. Uh, and, I, and part of the reason I find that a, a complicated question to answer is because I don't know. I mean, I know that there's something good about the revision of making a more robust and truer history, but I think in some sense, I mean, if we, take, if we take seriously what Ibram is calling for, when we get there, we're going to be imagining what our public sphere would look like completely differently anyway, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Question immediately to your right. Thank you. Hi. Um, so I am a social justice advocate slash racial justice advocate. Um, um, also happen to be a Muslim immigrant. Um, and uh, I had a very rude awakening when I entered this field that um, even those people, the woke people who want us to talk about racial justice, who promote racial justice, who want um, to talk about uh, white privilege, um, want us to also safeguard their white fragility. They want us to do it in a way that does not make them uncomfortable. Um, and if we push back, and if we try to tell the truth, if we try to educate them, we are accused of sowing seeds of discord or um, tearing the fabric of the society apart when all we're trying to do is pluck the racist threads <laughs> out of that fabric. So it becomes extremely exhausting at times 
these barriers um, that are placed in front of us prevent us from engaging in the kind of uh, conversation that we need to be uh, engaged in. So is there um, mm -hmm. any piece of advice um, or um, you know, self-care as well <laughs> that, <laughs> that you can offer to someone like me who is engaged both professionally and personally um, in racial justice work? Mm. <laughs> so I think, as I mentioned in my um, excerpt, I think that sort of pushback, that fragility, um, that clap back, as black people would say, <laughs> um, is, is a function of racism itself. Mm -hmm. right? and, and so what I mean by that is when someone denies that they are racist after you, let's say, charge them as being racist, that is something that we should expect. Um, and, and, and the reason why I just wanted to emphasize that is because if it's not something that, if you're in, engaged in racial justice work and you have this expectation that when you point out clearly and indisputably that what someone has said is racist, that they're going to understand that and admit that, <laughs> Then, then, and, and then obviously they don't, right? That's gonna set us up for being hurt. That's going to set us up for not being able to sort of maintain sort of our emotional center in that specific moment. Um, and so I, I think that, I, I just wanted to sort of mention that. Um, and, and also what I try to do when, when people um, sort of, deny that they're being racist and they say that they're not racist and they're adamant about it um, and they say, no, I'm the real racist or I'm the one who's <laughs> sort of cutting up America and they're trying to bring America together. And you know, so, so what I try to do uh, is I ask them, okay, so you're saying that I'm a racist and you swear that you're not? So that means you must know what a racist is. I asked them to define the term racist. Mm -hmm. The reason why this is critical mm. is because typically the people who swear that they're not racist don't even know what a racist is. Mm -hmm. They just know that they're not it, <laughs> right? And so you force them, right, to essentially define terms. And I, I think when people refuse, that's one of the ways in which people are able to maintain their denial but because they don't have to define terms. You're not a problem. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I guess because that is what the dynamic is, yeah. right? Is that you become cast as a problem. And I feel like we have to witness each other and say, no, you're not the, I mean, you know, consistently. Question in the back. Hi, thank you. Um, it's really an honor to have you here today. Um, there seems to be a broader cultural movement toward asking about where things come from. Where does our food come from? How does it get to us? Or how does the energy that runs our homes get to us? How do our products, whether it's our clothing or electronics, get to us? And what you've um, really done for me is something deeper and more profound, which is ask the question of how do we get our ideas? How does our consciousness, 
how is it sort of created in us? So I wanted to ask you as historians, do you think there is a line between history and philosophy? And is history and philosophy really, unlike we're sometimes taught in school, not two different disciplines, but part of something more broadly joined? Well, I'll say it's only very recently that people have begun to refer to me as a historian. So I started out as a law professor, and I studied, my graduate work was in American studies, and I studied list, uh, literature and cultural studies. And I think implied in your question is that these distinctions, disciplinary distinctions, are really just about bibliographies, right? These are series of books that we read, or methodologies. These are ways that we pursue truth. And I think it would be fair to say for all three of us, and you all correct me if I'm wrong, but that all of us defy the boundaries of both the conventional bibliographies and the conventional methodologies because we're trying to pursue truth, right? And the sort of the narrowness of those categories actually can disrupt um, the process of getting to the deep answers. So. Um, I'm fine putting on different hats, but really the question is always for me, what it is, what is my question and how do I get to answer, what do I need to answer it, right? Um, and oftentimes when those are questions that are, um, have um, a, a deep and immediate moral and political and human significance, the idea that you're only supposed to pursue them in a particular way can actually undermine the fire in your belly to answer the question. and so. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 I believe in the breach of the disciplinary boundary. So I'm very sorry we are running out of time, so this is going to be our final question. This is a very practical question. Um, so as a black mom, I struggle with the reality of the desire to be anti-racist but the reality of statistics and everyone's an anti-racist until you start drawing school lines, right? Nobody wants to be in a bad school district. No one wants to live in an unsafe neighborhood. So practically speaking, how do we employ these tools when it comes to our children? Myself, I'm, you know, I'll walk through any neighborhood, I'm not scared. I've gone to non-Ivy League schools and I'm fine, but you always want the best for your children. So practically speaking, how do you start employing these tools for young pe your young children, you know, in spite of statistics and um, school line, property zones and all of those mm -hmm. things that we deal with in, in real life outside of the theoretical frameworks of anti-racism. Um, so, so I think that what, what racist ideas have done to us is in many ways racist ideas have separated us from reality and, and caused us to imagine that we're living in the safest neighborhoods when people are dying all around us. Um, and, and we're living in neighborhoods where we don't get robbed, where people are constantly being robbed of their life savings, while in other neighborhoods they're just getting robbed of, of $20. Um, Y'all know what I mean by that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, That's truth right there. And, and that, um, and, and so I think that when we really take a serious sort of anti-racist perspective, we begin to see that this idea that, for instance, black neighborhoods are the most dangerous 
or poor black neighborhoods are the most dangerous and rich white neighborhoods are the safest is actually not true. Um, we also begin to see, we also open ourselves up, for instance, to, to more and more studies that are now finding that when those black parents decide to send their child to that elite, or let me just actually speak more practically. So I, my, my, my wife and I um, have a three-year-old daughter who is entering into preschool. And, and so this, this question of what school to send her to emerged. And we decided to look at the evidence. And, and the evidence showed that the number one most important thing for her as a black child was having a black teacher, mm -hmm. more than anything else. And, and there's all sorts of new studies that are showing that if a black child has a black teacher, they're more likely to graduate high school, they're less likely to drop out, they're more likely to do X, Y, and Z. And so for us, we were like, okay, let's ensure that we get her a school with a black teacher. And so it wasn't as important to us to have the highest ranking school where she did not have a black teacher, right? And, and, but what I'm saying is some black parents who believe that the most superior school is going to have all white kids and all white teachers wouldn't even necessarily open themselves up to that, mm -hmm. which would then result in their child going to a school that, and, and having a type of teacher that may not be as best for them as if they were open up to another school. Right. Just as you have, and, and so I think it's, I think you can actually be very practical and anti-racist. I, you know, I, I, I'll say I think one of the I really I appreciate the 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 research example because I think it's in some sense a, a, a sign of the fact that we're scholars because every <laughs> single decision about my child my either of my children I do like a ton of research right <laughs> um, like studies upon studies upon studies but everything from like you know my child who's born in in Ju late July is like does he do I keep him out of kindergarten for a year what did the studies on redshirting say right um, there were 30 of them at the time um, <laughs> and I read all of them and he went to kindergarten um, or at, uh, but um, but I but also the recognition that that is uh, not available to everyone, right? Even the idea of choice, um, mm -hmm. and, and, and really not available to black people by and large, right? This idea of, um, it, it, of being able to make a series of choices about where your child will be, where they live, what activities they'll participate in, what school they go to, is remarkably rarefied for black people. And so I think that those, that choice making is incredibly important. I think everybody wants to do well by their children and you make choices um, accordingly. For me, the, the part that is insurgent or that is pushing back is actually to distribute knowledge widely, to not engage. One of the primary forces of racial inequality in the society is opportunity hoarding, right? And so I refuse to hoard opportunities. So every chance I get, I am sharing with everybody, and, I, and not with black people, but with working class and poor people in general, knowledge about resources, about opportunities, about how do you, you know, how do you go to the, to the museums for free, right? Those kinds of things, I think, a practice in day-to-day -day life, um, which I think of as, as much an anti-classist practice as an anti-racist practice, but in order, to refuse the ways in which members of my social class actually ensure 
the so their social class reproduction and the social class reproduction of those who are relatively disadvantaged to try to fight against that. And um, I don't think that that requires um, sacrificing. In fact, I think that you know the moments when we say, "Oh, well, I'm not going to you know make these choices for my kids because other people have," and that that's a kind of vanity that's very, relatively useless, right? Mm -hmm. But that if we actually want to redistribute things, that we do it, right? We do it in our practice. Can we give our authors a round of applause? You have been listening to the Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast. Please make sure to hit the subscribe button to keep up to date on all our newest author talks. After every event, there are limited quantities of signed copies of the featured books. Don't forget to grab your copy today. If you would like more information on Midtown Scholar Bookstore, please visit midtownscholar.com. The Midtown Scholar Bookstore Author Reading Podcast is a free podcast and does not own the rights to any of the readings. <laughs>